In this episode of 9-2-I Talks, actor-director Emilio Estevez discusses his new film, The Public, a story tackling homelessness and mental illness, with Alec Baldwin, executive director of the Coalition for the Homeless, David Giffen, and moderator Allison Stewart. The conversation was recorded on April 2nd, 2019, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Wow. Thanks, uh, thanks for sticking around. By the way, I just want to let you know I'm not going to hog all the time asking questions. You guys know you have cards out there, so scribble down your questions in about 20 minutes. I'll let you guys take over. We're going to light a little fire and make some s'mores later on, okay? It's not going to be that time. <laughs> Sing some songs. So, Emilio, you, wrote, you said in one interview, I've watched a lot of interviews, but this one line really struck me. I don't, I don't make movies with agendas. I make movies because I want to tell stories. That's right. So when you really think about this film, what is the story? So I, I felt over the years, because uh, you know, it took a long time to make this picture. Well, it, it took 12 years. Um, in fact, I started this process uh, April 1st, 2007. And it began with a, 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 an article in the LA Times that was written, that's right, right uh, written off Sample by one. Chip Ward. And, and it was about how uh, libraries had become de facto homeless shelters and how um, librarians are now tasked with being uh, first responders and, and de facto social workers. And so I was so moved by it that I, I, I felt that it was over the years that it didn't get made, that the script that I wrote, the first draft, which needed a lot of work, which over the next 10 years did get addressed and, and did, uh, I did a lot of work on, uh, I felt a moral imperative to make this film. Uh, I, I felt that as time passed, the stories in the script were an unfolding in real time on the news. And so it felt like as the, as the years went on, the, the story and the script and, and the movie felt more relevant. And so I couldn't let it go. And so what I think that this film shares in common with the work that I've been doing for the last 20 years, starting with the word home, in where I played a, in, in 22 years ago, where I played a Vietnam vet suffering from PTSD. And then we made Bobby about the day Bobby Kennedy was shot. Uh, and then The Way, uh, which was a, a few years ago, all informed this film. And what these movies have in common is they, they are about a, a shared trauma. Uh, they are about a shared humanity. And, and I don't believe that any of us walk the planet pain-free, that we all have a certain amount of trauma. And that is reflected not only in these movies, but that is also reflected in all of these characters uh, in the film. And so I was driven to tell this story at this time. And as Alex said early, in early days when we first started talking about the picture, that this movie is about everything that's happening in the country now. And I, I, and I just couldn't let it go. What's the story to you of this film, Alec? Well, I... I mean, I think that he's articulated that very well. For me, the impact has been that I can't drive by a library again and not have a different perspective about what's going on inside that building. Um, when I was a child, a library had a certain function, and uh, uh, they had the old bookmobiles on the south shore of Long Island that would park in little residential parking spots, and you go there and check out your books in this little pod of a trailer and so forth. <clears throat> and um, my wife and I have a charitable foundation where we did some fundraising for the addition of a children's wing at the East Hampton Library on Long Island, where we were very dedicated to that project of raising that money. 
uh, and uh, Bob Stern, the famous Robert A.M. Stern, designed the wing, and a really beautiful addition to this library. And in, in that zone, so to speak, we, we, I read an article about a couple of libraries, or like three libraries in Iowa, and the writer from the Times discussed the difficulties of these little libraries in Iowa. And long story short, as I called the librarian from one of them, and I said, if my wife and I were to send you some money for, the, uh, uh, for your facility, I'm just curious, what would you need it for? And she said, food. She said, we don't want any books. She said, books we've got. And she said, our budget for the, for the year is $5,000. She said, everybody in the building is, uh, I mean, they get some outside contribution from the state or uh, city. And she said, everybody is volunteer or like ridiculously part-time and they have very limited hours. And she goes, but we need food because kids come here and they haven't eaten. And they're asking us for a juice box. They're asking us for a snack. I mean, the, the roles that they're asked to play, sometimes forced to play in their community is something that was just unknown to me. So this article that Amelia is referring to is called Written Off, and it was by a gentleman named Chip Ward who worked in Salt Lake City. And you've been going and touring around the country right. and you... You and Chip hooked up. We did. In Salt We Lake. met for the first time face to face. What was that like? Uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, he's a dear man. Uh, he has, over the years, has been a, a, a source of, of, of strength and encouragement for me, and, and in many ways, a North Star. And he would, as, as the film would you know, get going and then fall apart, uh, he would send an email and say, hang in there. The story needs to be told. The story will be told eventually. And it's just going to be, uh, it's just all about timing. Uh, Do you mind reading a passage from this that I, I highlighted? Do you have, are you a glasses person? Or? I'm not a glasses person, but. Okay. <laughs> we're the asterisk. He just well, looks about, needs glasses. However, we're about to find out. Just that passage, it's just really beautifully written, and I think you'll understand why Amelia was so drawn to this piece. In bad weather, most of the homeless have nowhere to go but public places. Local shelters push them out at six in the morning, and even when the weather is good, they are already lining up by the time the library opens at nine because they want to sit down and recover from the chilly dawn or use the restrooms. Fast food restaurants, hotel lobbies, office foyers, and shopping malls do not tolerate them for long. Public libraries, on the other hand, are open and tolerant, even inviting and entertaining places for them to seek refuge from a world that will not abide their often disheveled and odorous presentation, their odd and sometimes obnoxious behaviors, and the awkward challenges that they present. You've been going around the country to libraries. I, I follow the Instagram account for this. And you're, Thank you. <laughs> but every time I look down, it's like, oh, Emilio's going live from Boulder. Oh, Emilio's going live from San Francisco. You've been all over the country. We've, we, this is our, our 30th stop along the way. Uh, and we started in, in January. Uh, and there were a couple of little breaks in between. But, but for the most part, uh, we have had an event every day uh, leading up to our arrival in New York on, on Sunday night. Uh, it's been extraordinary. Uh, we, we started at ALA conference uh, up in Seattle, so screening for librarians specifically. Uh, we've screened for mental health uh, advocates and, and their groups. We've screened for, uh, 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 for homeless advocates, uh, and, and we've screened for homeless individuals as well at shelters. And it's been very emotional and, and very rewarding because this is a film that celebrates the poor, the misfits, the outcasts, uh, the marginalized, 
And these individuals who we screened the film for are now seeing themselves on screen and they're empowered and they're seeing themselves in heroic roles. And they're feeling, as they've related back to me, they're feeling heard, maybe for the first time in their lives. Representation and matters, it really indeed. does. Indeed, and so it's been, uh, it's been very rewarding and, and very gratifying this entire experience to be able to share the film. And, and again, we don't have a big um, um, studio budget to, to go out and market this thing, so we've taken the movie to the people in the hopes that we'd create a grassroots movement for the film, and I, I, I believe we have. Um, uh, you know, big Hollywood uh, films oftentimes go out there like big oil companies. You have to think, and they go down out there when they're big rigs and they drill down into your wallets and they extract <laughs> large sums of cash. And, and, you know, I've been out there like with a divining rod and a shaman, uh, you know, trying, <laughs> trying to figure it out. But, but we've, we have, we've touched people and we have, we've managed to, I, I, I think, make, make a difference. And hopefully there's a movement here, that there's a conversation that has started. And if you're not, and if you haven't started a conversation, you're already in one about how to solve this. Because homelessness is a, um, it's, it's not a, uh, a condition, it's a situation. And it's relatively new. Uh, homelessness began uh, in the 80s after the Mental Health Services Act w was, was undone by the next administration and the omnibus budget, which, which crushed HUD and, and, and defunded it by 77%. And then the, the, uh, the, the Clinton Welfare Reform Act. So it was like, a, it was like three strikes. And um, this has gotten us to the place we're at right now. And so, but it's solvable. I do believe it's solvable with, if there's a collective will to do this. So Amelia was working on the script for, for 10 years. Once it got to you, Alec, when you first read it, what jumped out to you about it as a script? Everybody here saw the movie, right? Yeah. Well, I knew right away I did not want to be naked in the Cincinnati. <laughs> I chose to not examine one of those roles in the film. <clears throat> but he came to me and said, did you want to play this hostage negotiator, this crisis negotiator? And I said, sure. And again, we've said this many times uh, in each other's presence, which is that in this business, Emilio along with a handful of other people I've encountered over the years, represents somebody who, if you're available, you always say yes. It's not about the money. It's not about, and even if the part is a smaller role that you, that you might ordinarily not want to do, you want to be in one of his movies because they don't come around that often, these movies that have a social content and deal with some kind of social justice or his unique perspective on history, like the Kennedy assassination and so forth. And uh, the... Uh, I read it, and as is often the case, I don't think, oh, what's my part? I think, what's the movie, and do I want to be in that movie? And I, I, I've done that maybe to a fault over the years where I'm like, no, no, I don't want to play Iron Man. Uh, I'd rather play the hostage negotiator in Emilio Estevez's <laughs> film on homelessness. No, I'm joking. But the, but the, but the point is you really think about the uh, uh, movie, and, uh, um, and uh, you know, there's, a, there's like a handful of people who you think, if they call, you want to go. And how you also want to spend your time. How, how you, want to, you want to do your art. I mean, that's important to you, too, as an well, actor, yeah, I have to plus, plus, in terms of what you say, things like this are less and less and less as time goes on. Like, we're at a point now, and this is just my perspective, is that in the arc of a kind of one-for-them, one-for-me uh, model, in the 
in the arc of a thing where it's like, I'm going to go do a money gig, then I'm going to do one for my soul. The one for my soul now is almost exclusively going to the theater. Mm-hmm. You know, like you do, like you, you do, you do a money gig and you do a less money gig and, and, and none of it's really that uh, enriching to you that way. And so you wind up running back to do a play because you, it's more complicated and, and deeper material. But uh, with him, we, um, plus he has that wonderful uh, 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 ability he's demonstrated to get the, the, the most horrific part of the job is to raise the money. To get investors to come. I mean, if you knew, if you if, if we made a documentary film for you about how movies are made now, I really think you'd be stunned <laughs> how how what a task it is to raise money for movies and what you go through. And oftentimes, I, the easiest part is the making of it. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I'll finish with this, but which is, I have a movie that's in the Tribeca Film Festival this year, which, which is a movie called Crown Vic. About it, it's a two-hander about two cops, like a training day, older cop, younger cop. And I was going to star in the movie, and we had two financial, you know, we, we baked the souffle twice, and it rose, and it rose, and it rose, and then it fell. <laughs> and, we, and we lost this co-star, and we lost the financing, and it's very, very frustrating. So with him, he, you know, he, he's a wonderful actor, he's a wonderful director. I've stressed Ed Infinite and what a wonderful writer he is. And he's also a wonderful producer, because he gets the, the, the money to make the movie, and then he sells the movie which is another uh, uh, incredibly difficult task these days is to get the movie distributed. When you were out in the process of raising money without naming names, was there any meeting you took where you thought, I, and the person was really negative and you just went and, like stomach punch the guy? Like just, or gal, like just had a really, one of those reactions. Uh, there's a list. There's a list? Yeah, there's a list. Actually, I mean, listen, I, I, I know that when I walk into an office. Violence I, is not a means to an end. <laughs> As the film, Certainly proves, really. right? This is a film about nonviolent civil disobedience. I just wanted to share that with you. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> what was the question? I'm sorry. <laughs> we can move on. The film was shot in 22 days, yes. right? Yeah, that's right. As a director, what's great about that and then... It may seem like an obvious question, but what's tough about that? So the great thing is that you don't have a whole lot of time to overthink uh, the, the, the day. And so it's all about planning. It's all about prep. Uh, and of course, because I'd had 10 years to marinate in this, uh, I, had, <laughs> I, had, I had better be planned. I had better show up knowing where I was going to put the camera. And if I showed up not knowing my lines, I think he would have looked at me and said, are you kidding me? So... Um, so there was a lot of time for me to think about this. Uh, the, the, uh, the downside is that, you know, you only have four days with this certain actor. You have six days with Gabrielle. You have Jeffrey Wright is in and out of town, and, and Alec has six days, five days, whatever, whatever the schedule ended up being. And so it, the onus is then on me, and of course my editor. I have an amazing editor that I've worked with now three times, Richard Chu, who won the Oscar for the first Star Wars. He cut uh, Risky Business. He cut The Conversation, uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, so he's, he's, he's a, a seasoned pro. So I, I then turn the footage over to him and I say, make it look like all these people were here at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> and then I go away. No, that's not true. But, um, but it was um, that process, the editing process, was protracted. 
uh, because of that. It, it was a, it was a really a two-year process of cutting this picture to get it to the length, to get the rating that we wanted, uh, and then obviously to to land a distributor that got uh, that got it, that that understood what I was working towards, and that I knew. After, especially now after this long tour, that this is a movie that plays with audiences. This is not a day and date movie. This is not a movie that goes direct to, to, to VOD. This is a film that is a, is, a, is a shared experience because it's about our shared experience. And when you see the film, whether it's in a crowd this size tonight or last Friday we screened in Cincinnati where we made the film for 2,400 people or Toronto Film Festival for 2,500 people, the movie plays with an audience, and it's very, um, it's very entertaining. And I think when we, you know, when when you when you look at this uh, with the story on paper, uh, you say, well, a movie in the library, homelessness, mental, it's like, mm. but then it's surprisingly funny, and I think that really disarms people. That was actually but, my next question, but go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. No, you go ahead. <laughs> no, you. <laughs> go ahead. My question was going to be, you know, it's it's difficult subjects, and then there are, there are these laughs, and mm. Alec, you're a great comic actor, you're a serious actor. How do you, what's that balance like? How do you find that, that balance? When you, when you make a movie, you say to yourself, first of all, you can't, you have no hope of making a good film if you don't have a good script. I've done films with actors and directors who were all very competent, some of them very gifted people, and you knew that if everybody came to work and did their job perfectly, mediocrity was still the best we could hope for. Mm. Because the material just doesn't support that. So again, I, 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 I tip my hat to him as a writer. You read the script, you saw the humor that was there, it's on the page. If it's not on the page, uh, <clears throat> you know, when people say we're going to do some serious rewriting of a screenplay while we're shooting the film, I always think that's like fixing the car while we're driving the car, <laughs> which is a very difficult thing to try to pull off, I would imagine. And so w w you look at the script, and, and, I, and I used to, get excited, I go, well, it's this movie star and this actress and they're going to pay me and we're going to go to Paris and, I'm, and, I'm, and I look at it and I go, I still don't get it. I once had my agent call me up and go, would you do me a favor? I, I was offered a movie that was the most money I was ever offered to star in a film. And, my, and I said no. I read it. I was like, God, I wanted so badly to like this script. You have no idea how much I wanted to like this script. And my agent said, would you do me a favor? Would you come over to my office and read the script again underneath a special lamp that I have in my office. <laughs> <laughs> projects onto the script the amount of money they're gonna pay <laughs> to do this. Would you do that for me? Would you read it one more time? And this, in that, what is that sound by the way? It sounds like a monster coming out of the <laughs> cellar. Is it the mic? No? Is it us? It might be us. Oh, is it me? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> settle, settle, Baldwin. <laughs> we have a special guest here, right? You can go to sleep if you want to, darling. Oh. It's okay. We have a very past my bedtime too. Who looks like she's about to go to sleep? I, I would too. Um, the, uh, but to finish this, which is that you, you little things that add up to like, how do you make a good movie? You know, one shot at a time. How do you make a good movie? Everybody is is willing to to trust. Uh, each other and, and the director. And, and, and one of the keys is to have a director like him. He's a very unique guy because in spite of all of this difficulty, in spite of all of these uh, uh, obstacles he has to overcome in order to, to get on the set shooting, 
and actually start making the film, he does not transmit any of his tension to the cast, which is kind of rare. When you work in the high-stakes pressure game of like almost micro-budget movies, I mean, I do Mission Impossible, and Mission Impossible, the budget of his movie is the budget for Tic Tacs on Mission Impossible. <laughs> right. For ice, you know right. what I mean? And it's like some it's of true. these movies, and he was in the first Mission Impossible, by the way, as we remember. But my point is that when you have a lim limited amount of money and, you're, and all the three-dimensional chess game of the cast, all these different things, it can be very, very stressful, and yet he transmits none of <laughs> There we go. Hey. hey. Uh, uh, the, the, he uh, uh, does not transmit any of his tension to the cast, and that was really, really Well, admirable. because it's not your business, right, you, to, to take on that anxiety and that tension. And, and I've been, uh, on, obviously, on, on all sides of it, and so I know what it mm -hmm. feels like when a director, when a producer is sharing that with the actors and bringing them into their pain and, and that process. And, and that's part of, this, of the sausage that I don't want to see made when I'm simply acting. And so, um, so but, but I want to just add that it, when, when Alec said yes, uh, it, was, it, it was such a, a, a vote of confidence for me uh, because it had taken so long to, to get the film made, and he says, I, I love the script, I wanna participate, I wanna be in this. And, and you know, for, for, for many years, especially lately, we know him as a, as a comedic actor, but that's not how I was introduced to him. And so the, the idea that he would step into this role and play this very dramatic uh, uh, character, and it, was, it was an opportunity, I thought, to remind people just how brilliant he is when given the, the, the material and the opportunity. And so when the camera's on him, you, you, you've seen the film, I just, I, and it's the same with a lot of the actors, we just hold. And, there's, and, and it, that is the confidence I have in Alec and the other actors to say, I trust you, I'm not gonna count on the cut to get us to the emotion. It's all happening on screen. There's thought unraveling. There's process happening on screen. And, and it's, it's like long form arithmetic. And I want to see it. And, and he was giving it every step of the way. I'm just going to ask a few more questions and then we'll get to your questions. And then we have a couple of special guests we want to bring on the stage uh, to talk about some of the issues in the film. Who's a behind the scenes hero on this film? Someone that we haven't talked about or maybe hasn't necessarily got recognition in press, you think really? The city of Cincinnati mm -hmm. is uh, the behind the scenes here, here. The movie could not have been made without the support of the city, without the support of the film commission, uh, without the support of the state of Ohio, because essentially, again, with a budget like this, uh, we need to go to a, a, a state that has a, a, a tax incentive and they essentially become your partner. So Ohio has an amazing tax incentive uh, they came uh, to the table and they helped us produce the movie. So the city of Cincinnati, the mayor's office, the police department, uh, locations, the library, of course, they all said, okay, we get it. Uh, we, wanna, we wanna help you get this made. What's it gonna take? So those, uh, it's, it's hard to really quantify what those numbers are, but it's in the millions. Uh, that, that, that's money that is, is, is all on screen. This movie doesn't look like a, a small independent movie and, and the, the city of Cincinnati is responsible for that, along with the DP, of course. But, uh, 
Well, yeah. And you've, you've made Cincinnati a base for yourself. I have, yeah. Yeah, I'm spending a lot of time there. Yeah. Yes, Cincinnati's in the house. All right. No, it's a gorgeous city. And uh, there's a lot going on there with, uh, in terms of the arts. Mm -hmm. The arts are very well supported in the city. And um, it's only an hour and a half from New York. And Grater's oh. ice cream. I, I was, I was going to say the same thing. Great. It's sorry. the home of Grater's ice, ice cream. Grater's ice cream. That's right. Reason enough to move to Cincinnati. <laughs> For real. That's so funny you said that. It's very much an ensemble piece. Mm. As an actor, as actors, mm. we're talking as the writer and the director, now as actors, what do you like about working in an ensemble? It's like being part of a team. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, and, and you're only as good as the team you surround yourself with. And when you lean into your fellow actors, as I did, uh, and, and you know that if you have to hand it off, they can take the ball and run for another 10 yards. And if they need to hand it off, he can pass it off to Jeffrey Wright. And certainly Michael K. Williams is right there to take it again and run with it. So it's, um, it, 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 we, we, we leaned in and leaned on each other. And that's the great thing about working on ensemble films. The, some of the, the most successful films that I've been associated with have been ensembles. And so that's where, I, that's where I've uh, really thrived as an actor. How about for you, Alec? I think that when you make it on a film like that, you, the, it's the opportunity to enjoy people that you've really wanted to work with. You know, I've always wanted to work with Jeffrey Wright. You know, I, I sit home and binge Westworld like a lot of other people. I sit there and go, man, I want to work with him one day. And I've met him before, you know. And a variety of other people that are... I mean, Michael... Uh, uh, Michael... Uh, Michael Kay, I, I, I sat home and it was just completely uh, uh, drugged by the series The Night Of, mm. and loved Riz Ahmed, and fell in love with, you know, Zalian wrote the screenplay and directed with Richard Price was one of the writers, all this really incredible group of people. Jeannie Berlin playing that uh, prosecutor. What a great group of people. Uh, Totoro, Totoro, Totoro. Bill Camp. Know? Yeah, Bill Camp. I mean, it was just flawless, the people. And then I'm on the set with uh, Michael, uh, Michael Kay, you know, you always dream, like when I did Glenn Gary, things like that, where you're working mm -hmm. with people that you really, people you've loved, yeah. and then you're on the set with them, and it's really a very, it's a real opportunity and a joy. Obviously, homelessness is, is the, the overarching issue mm -hmm. of the film, but there's a, there are a lot of little subtle nods to other issues. I, at one point, you hear something about Narcan mm -hmm. briefly in the back, That's and right. I think you know in Philadelphia's librarians, can now administer Narcan. That's right. Most, actually, in, right. In urban libraries are, are, are empowering librarians to get, as long as they're trained, mm -hmm. to, uh, to administer Narcan. I'm sorry, I cut you off. No, I was just wondering, when you talk to the librarians about having to take on this additional role, what do they tell you? They're overwhelmed. Yeah. Uh, there is a, a, a program that started in San Francisco uh, where they began to bring in social workers to help lighten the load uh, because, again, librarians... Um, they are, they're not LCSWs. They're, they have uh, you know, a, a degree in library science. Mm -hmm. uh, they are uh, built to do a job that is, again, librarians were Google before Google, right? Mm -hmm. And they're still providing that service. But they're not skilled, nor should we lean into them uh, and ask them to, to, to be social workers. And so what's happening around the country is that social workers are now being brought into libraries uh, and, and helping out and, and, and really being uh, uh, that, that, 
that other uh, uh, leg on that stool that is helping to, to solve the issues. We've got our last 15 minutes, so I want to get some of those questions in, and sure. I also want to bring out our, our special guests. So I'm going to do this, and I'm going to take those, and we'll welcome out our special guests. Hello. Amelia, will you help me out while I read these cards? Will you introduce our guests? Sure. We introduce uh, them? Yes. Thanks. Ryan Dowd. Uh, Ryan Dowd uh, wrote a book uh, called The Librarian's Guide to Homelessness. Uh, it came out, <laughs> came out last year uh, as we were uh, beginning to screen the film. Uh, Ryan uh, was in the crowd. I invited him to uh, join us for one of the first screenings in Santa Barbara. And as the questions started coming in, uh, I felt like I was in a little, the deep end of the pool, and I, uh, I, I want to stay in my lane. I'm, I'm not a librarian. I'm not an LCSW. I don't run a homeless shelter, but Ryan does. And I pulled him out of the crowd, and I said, I think you're going to take this one. And so we've been, we've been on the road ever since. Uh, Ryan also runs the second largest uh, homeless shelter in the state of Illinois uh, called Hesed House, where he's been working there for, since you were 13 years old. Yes, and you're now the executive director. And, um, and he's also my friend. And David, would you introduce Oh, yourself? hi, I'm Dave Giffen. I'm the executive director of the Coalition for the Homeless here in New York City. So th thank you both for being here. And I think a lot of these questions you'll be able to help answer. I hope so. Uh, this first one is thank you for making this film for bringing awareness to a growing problem. Oregon has tent cities, there's San Francisco and countless other places. How do we help as individuals? What can we do? Well, that, that is a great question. I think the, the first thing to do is to not accept that this is the way things are. You know, I, I've been in New York long enough to remember when this was not a problem, when there weren't hundreds of thousands of people who were in need of affordable housing when we had alternatives for people. And you know, it was in the late 70s and the early 80s that the problem really mushroomed in this city and there was a tremendous outrage at the time. Uh, New Yorkers said, no, this is not the city we live in and not the way things should be. But lo and behold now, it's been about 40 years since the crisis emerged. And my greatest fear is that it's become normalized, that we think that this is our city. But it, it's not, this is not the way things have to be. And uh, I heard you say this before, Emilio, that there are solutions to this, and that's one thing you have to keep in mind. Things don't have to be this way. It's not that we don't know the solutions to this problem. We know the solutions. They're just not being implemented. So the thing you can do is to not accept this is the way things are and put pressure on your elected officials to implement the policies that we know will solve this problem. Such, such as? Such as creating more low-income, permanent low-income housing in New York City. Right now, the mayor of New York City has a plan to build 300,000 units of affordable housing. The trick is how you de define affordable. So a good portion of those units, about 20% of them, are for people who can pay $2,500 a month or more on rent. That's not affordable housing. Right, right. That doesn't help the people we serve at the Coalition for the Homeless. And what we're trying to pressure the mayor to do is to set aside 10% of those units 
four homeless families. And he's resistant to that. He's committed to half that number, but that's not going to move the needle. Mm. The city has the resources to do, to do this. And we've seen historically that this works. So what we need is more pressure from New Yorkers to tell the mayor, no, we want you to solve the problem. This is a, a unique historic opportunity to do something about homelessness, and it's an opportunity that's being squandered. But wasn't there also uh, the, this notion, and you can describe the history of this, where the, the city was compelled to give direct cash stipends to people to maintain their leases and hold on to their rent control to rent stabilized buildings because the notion was that once they, they had a home, they had a lease, and they couldn't pay for it, and once they were, uh, they were uh, kicked out of that space, that's when they fell through the cracks and became homeless. Sure, and... And, and it, was, it was a cost... It was cost-effective to just give them the money and keep them there. Very cost-effective. And, and the city is doing a better job at eviction prevention than it has in, well, in my lifetime. Um, a few years ago, there were 29,000 households evicted in one year in New York City. That was in 2015, I believe, or 20, 2015. The city now has been giving more families who are being threatened with eviction, eviction prevention grants to help them stay. It's just a one-time grant. And that figure has gone from 29,000 down to 18,000. So that's 11,000 families who would have become homeless who are not homeless because we're keeping them in their homes. The average amount of money it takes to keep a family in their home is about five, $6,000. Once a family becomes homeless, it costs taxpayers about $84,000 uh, to keep that family in emergency shelters. Yeah. And, uh, you know, forget about the cost-effectiveness of this. It's inhumane to let people become homeless when you can do something about it. You know, these are mostly women and kids. Yeah. <clears throat> Ryan, you said you, you've been doing this work since you were a teenager. How did you start, how did you get involved as a teenager? I'm afraid you're going to ask that. So I, uh, I was in Sunday school class, and they were passing around a sign-up sheet for the local shelter, and I saw it, and I didn't know what the shelter was, uh, but I saw that um, none of the boys had signed up, and all the girls had. <laughs> and uh, that's why I went the first time, trying to get a date. <laughs> but when I got there, it was very, very different from my suburban upbringing, and, it, and there was more diversity, and there was, there was mental illness right there, and there was substance abuse right there in my face. And, and even as a 13-year-old, there was something that just I liked being there, and so I kept going, and I'm still there. Over time, what has changed, and what has been stubbornly persistent? The population has changed dramatically. Uh, the percentage of women has increased. The percentage of children has just exploded. The first time we had a, sh uh, a child in our shelter, it made the front page of the newspaper. And tonight, I bet we have 50 uh, in the shelter. And it's, it's just it's not newsworthy anymore. Uh, the percentage of individuals who have employment. Uh, back in the early 80s, virtually nobody in our shelter had any employment. Now, the vast majority of them are working full time or part time. And so the, the, the demographics and the, what homelessness looks like in our country, to David's point earlier, has just dramatically changed. We've, we've watched this, this issue, this crisis evolve and, and become because we're not, doing, we're not doing enough to stop it. I've got another question for you, Emilio. Are any of the actors homeless? Sure. Uh, we invited uh, individuals experiencing homelessness in Cincinnati to participate. Uh, and again, it was the, the criteria was uh, once the lockdown happens, there needs to be consistency, and I need to count on you to come back tomorrow and the next day uh, because w there needs to be that continuity. So uh, there, that, that was okay. 
uh, to, to many of them, but then when I talked about the nudity, uh, it, it, became another, <laughs> it became another issue. Uh, and, but, uh, but at the end of the day, we were joined by, by several individuals who, who said, yes, I'm in, uh, and sometimes joined later. Uh, guys uh, who would say, hey, man, uh, do you have a job for me? And I said, yes, we do. Uh, so come and join us. And yeah, so they, they are depicted on, on, on screen, and, uh, and they did a, all of them just did a remarkable job. This is a question for you, Amelia, and also for you, David and, and Ryan and Alex that have been here. I was, I've been listening very closely to your language, and you've been saying people experiencing homelessness. Right. What's the right thing to say? What's the right well, language we, to you? We talk about this specifically. Um, again, when we talk about, when we started going out on, on, on this tour, I would say, and homeless people, and we, there was pushback. You can't, uh, that, you can't identify them as that. Uh, you have to say people, individuals experiencing homelessness. But then we had a sidebar conversation with it, about it, and you've pushed back against that, correct? And you, I, I think but, language matters, absolutely. Language matters, and, and how we think about the issue is defined partially by our language. Uh, though with the tens of thousands of individuals experiencing homelessness that I've met over the decades, uh, not a single one cared how you spoke about them. They care about how you speak to them. And so that's really been my focus, is let's, let's focus on how we interact with individuals uh, versus just making sure that we use the right language. Mm. What do you think, David? Well, the, the term homeless person does conjure up an image in most people's minds because you relate it with what you see every day. Right, so, so any of us, when we're commuting to work in the morning, going shopping, whatever, we see homeless people on the streets. That's what we think of as a homeless person. Now, the, th those are homeless people in New York City, and that is a part of the problem, but it is really just a tiny, tiny part of the problem in New York City. And the people you see on the streets are actually not representative of homelessness in New York City. There are, nobody knows exactly how many homeless people are on the streets. The city does a count. It's not a very good count. They say 4,000. It's probably twice that. But for every person on the streets, there are 10 times that many in the shelters tonight. Mm -hmm. Tonight, there are 64,000 people sleeping in 467 homeless shelters in New York City. Three quarters of those are members of homeless families. It's mostly women and kids. There's 23,000 kids sleeping in homeless shelters tonight, and most of those are age six and below. Mm. That's not what you think of when you think of homelessness. If you want to think of what a homeless person in New York City looks like, think of a six-year-old girl in a shelter. That's what homelessness in the city looks like. And then for every one of those people in the shelter system tonight, there are 25 times that many people just teetering on the verge of homelessness, living doubled and tripled up uh, in substandard or illegal housing who are just trying not to fall into the ranks of people in the streets and shelters. How many shelters are there in the five boroughs? 467. 467 shelters? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. Mm. Yeah. Well, how would you describe people, I'm curious, how would you describe people who, uh, who won't go to shelters? Like if you have people who are like chronically... Uh, you know, we, we have people, I live in the, in the East Village off of Washington Square, and we have a, an assortment of people who, that's their spot. And sure. they've been there winter, spring, summer, fall for multiple years, some of them. Yeah, and, and we talk to those folks every night, and, and the city has a pretty robust outreach program to try to get people to come in. Those people who are on the streets 
tend to have a much higher incidence of mental illness right. and of substance use, physical disabilities. And for the most part, those folks have been in the shelter system, but they found it hard to negotiate the rules of the shelter system or they've been preyed upon by other people or they've mm -hmm. just heard things about it that make them not want to go into it. Sure. Um, there are better solutions for folks like that. There is low threshold shelters like the kind that Ryan runs that have less rules, make it easier for street homeless people to come in and start to access services. And there's a solution called supportive housing that's permanent housing with on-site supportive services. It's a great model for homeless people with mental illness and other disabilities. Um, we've been doing it in the city now for about 25 years, and it's, uh, it's economically beneficial. For every person, for every mentally ill homeless person you place in permanent supportive housing, it saves taxpayers about $10,000 a year. People stay stabilized for the long run, and actually, the property values in the neighborhoods where you build supportive housing goes up. So it's win, win, win. So we put a lot of pressure on the mayor and the governor to build more supportive housing. And we did get the mayor a couple of years ago to commit $2.6 billion, the governor to commit to some amount of money. It's a little tricky with him to know what he means. Um, <laughs> but the city and state have committed to building 35,000 units of supportive housing for homeless mentally ill people. That's statewide, most of it in New York City. But of course, now it's all caught up behind the politics and the bureaucracy, and it's taking a long time for it to wrap up and come online. But once we see that happening, we will hopefully see fewer homeless people on the streets. Ryan, I want to help you bring this back around to the movie, because one of the things that you work on and you do is you help librarians understand and help train them and give them guidance on things that they can do and ways that they can be effective. Would you share a couple of things that you share with librarians? Well, I, I do like a 10-hour training, but I'll try to condense it down into, into a few seconds. Um, a lot of it is, is how to get ahead of problems. So when you're, when you're talking to someone who has, you know, suffering from paranoid schizophrenia or profound addiction or trauma, um, there's, there's a lot more potential volatility there. And so if if a librarian can get ahead of that, build a little bit of a relationship before there's a problem, it's a lot easier to de-escalate crisis later, and thus nobody gets banned from the library, nobody gets the police called, nobody has to barricade the doors and get naked. None of those, those things just don't happen, sorry. This one's for you, Emilio. This is now your second movie where you spend the majority of the film in a library. That's right, yeah. It's been almost, you know, 35 years. Next year will be 35 years, yeah. <laughs> How did that happen? What memories of going to the library do you have from growing up? Well, certainly not like this. this is, um, <laughs> I, the, the library was always a very safe space. Uh, it was a place where I could get lost in the stacks. Uh, it was a place where I could um, uh, stay curious. And, you know, before Google, before the Internet, uh, you would go to the library and you would look up words and, and you, on your way, uh, going through the dictionary uh, in searching for that word, you might stop along the way ten times and, and absorb all of those all of those words you weren't looking for. And the same with an encyclopedia. Uh, so, so for me, the library was a was a great place where my curiosity was always stoked and 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 always encouraged uh, by the librarians in in our neighborhood. Have you read this book, Palaces for I'm, I'm in it right now, yes. This is uh, a great social book. Social infrastructure. And, and, and the, the, the author really argues about how the library yes. 
the it's cornerstone of the social, social infrastructure, which we must build upon and, con and continue to fund, uh, that it's so critical. Uh, we are almost out of time. So you know what I want to do? I want to go down the row and just whatever your final thought is on the evening, on the film, on the issue, yeah. what's on your mind. So tell people about the movie. We, they've talked about the budget. There's, there's, there's not the advertising budget that has to be grassroots, which means he did the first 12 years of work. You guys have to do the next piece. <laughs> and, and certainly tell people that it's an important movie, that it's important for the dialogue that we have to take forward, but also tell them it's just a damn good movie because as they talked about, oftentimes this issue doesn't sound entertaining and yet this movie is profoundly entertaining. So go tell people to see this movie. <clears throat> Well, I, I would hope, too, that the film, in addition to being seen, uh, it, um, it, it, people who come out of it uh, park their bias at the door when they see someone on the street uh, suffering from this, this situation. Uh, oftentimes, we'll assign a story about how a person arrived at that unfortunate place, and we couldn't be more wrong. And so I think we, we need to get to that place where we need to park that bias at the door and, and, and start looking at these individuals as human beings, that they have a name and a face and a family, hopefully, uh, and let's, let's, let's support them rather than, rather than turning a blind eye. Well, I, uh, I was gonna say what he said about uh, spread the word to your friends because we are uh, oddly in a very word of mouth uh, business right now, people saying, uh, telling their friends that they really enjoyed something and saw it as very powerful. But also I want to say that a lot of people, um, you know, we live in New York where people have a lot of, uh, they live in, uh, some people live in homes where you might have a room dedicated to getting work done and having privacy and, uh, and being able to concentrate, being able to go on that journey of the mind that libraries were designed for, you know, and a lot of people don't have that opportunity. A library is still a place, a sacred place to go and to concentrate and have the, to have the freedom to concentrate. Uh, uh, I've got four children, five and under, uh, so there's very little opportunity to concentrate in my home <laughs> and, and escaping to somewhere where I can have the freedom to just let my mind go where I want, or even if I'm just reading a copy of The New Yorker, you know, a place that's a sacred place to have peace and quiet and to go on that journey. Emilio and I were saying a while back that my friend said to me that, that libraries were the, were the most reasonably priced form of travel you could ever imagine. Mm -hmm. You can go to all these places and enjoy all these things and learn all these things and have the freedom to do that. So even though libraries might not be something you avail yourself of, like public schools, a lot of people don't go to public schools in New York, they go to private schools, but nonetheless, we have an obligation to provide an education to everybody. I think we have an obligation to provide that sacred space that's represented by a library to people as well. And you said something... <laughs> Alex said something yesterday that, that I thought was, was terrific. He said, uh, there is no first class uh, in libraries, yeah, right? Yeah. It's, a, it's a space which is a very democratized space. Mm -hmm. 
And David, I'll let you have the last one. Sure. You know, the, the movie did a really wonderful job of introducing you to the, the various characters in it. And when it opens up, you see a bunch of homeless people standing outside of the library, and you think there's a bunch of homeless people. And as the movie plays out, you get to know a bunch of them and see that there's so much more there, that they have lives, they have wants, they have desires, they have plans. Just try, try to keep that thought in mind as you see homeless people on the streets, that everybody out there is somebody's mother, father, brother, sister, son, or daughter, and they all have stories as compelling as the, uh, the story in the film that you just saw. Every single person out there is deserving of our compassion. Every single individual out there matters. We shouldn't be comfortable walking by, by a single person. It's okay to give people a few bucks out of your pocket. People always ask me that, should I or shouldn't I do it? It's fine to do it. If you're not comfortable doing it, don't do it. It's fine. If you see somebody who looks like they're in distress, call 311, let the city know. They'll send outreach workers uh, to go and help them. But it's okay to do something about it, and it's not hard to do something about it. And I think we left a bunch of flyers out in the uh, lobby that um, it just says, what to do if? And it sets out a bunch of scenarios. What do I do if I see a homeless person on the street who looks cold? What do I do if I see somebody who the police are hassling? What do I do if I see somebody who looks like they're about to die? And it gives you very short, quick answers for that. So you can get that sheet out there or go to our website, coalitionforthehomeless.org, and get it off of that. But the trick is just to do something and remember the humanity of all of those people you see, as, as Emilio said. So spread the word about the movie. Park your bias. Libraries are sacred and homeless people are people. That's it. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Thanks for listening. 92i Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92iondemand.org.